episode 21 of the Next Gen Cast. My name's Nish Manek, I'm a GP Registrar in Cambridge. This conversation is with Sir David Nicholson, and I've been looking forward to it for some time. Sir David Nicholson's career in NHS management started as a graduate trainee and spanned more than 30 years, including the most senior posts in the service. He worked in mental health for 10 years, mostly in Yorkshire, where he was involved in implementing the policy of closing some of the old asylums. He had several other roles in acute trusts and strategic health authorities. And in 2006, he was appointed chief executive of the NHS. And then in 2013, following a major national restructure, he became the first chief executive of the organisation we now know as NHS England. And since he retired from the NHS in 2014, he's taken on a number of international roles, providing advice and guidance to governments and organisations focused on improving population health and providing universal health coverage. He's currently chair of Worcestershire Acute Hospitals NHS Trust. So I found this conversation absolutely fascinating for the breadth of perspective it provides on how the NHS has evolved over time, for the reflections he has on really keeping your sense of mission at the forefront of what you do as a leader, however tough things get, and they really did get tough for him, and his honesty for managing life at home with Sarah Jane Marsh, Chief Exec at Birmingham Women's and Children's Hospital, he's also done a great podcast for us, and being a very hands-on dad to two young children. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here's Sir David Nicholson. So David Nicholson, welcome to the Next Gen Cast. It's a real privilege to speak to you today. So your name has cropped up in several podcast episodes already so far, as you can probably imagine. Most recently with Dame Barbara Haken. And she said, and I quote, you were her biggest role model, but also Dave is a great manager and a quiet man. But when he spoke, you knew what he said would be profound. And most of us would have jumped off a cliff. David. And Sir Bruce Keogh also said in no uncertain terms in the way that he does that you are the best manager that he's ever worked with. So praise like that from people like that is bound to pique my curiosity. So I really wanted to get you on the podcast, hear your story and learn your leadership insights. So thank you for being here. It's right, I'm being quiet, aren't I? It's my nature. <laughs> I'm waiting for the profound. <laughs> yeah, that's you've put quite a lot of pressure on me now, but I'll do my best. <laughs> Thank you. So I thought we'll start at the start, David, if that's okay, because I'm always just really interested in people's early influences. I think they often shape not just who we are as people, but how we lead as well. So I wondered if you could take me back to the early David growing up in Nottingham. I mean, what was what was your childhood like? Um, my childhood was very, as far as I can remember, was very pleasant. Um, my parents were, my father was a plasterer. Uh, my mother was a housewife. We lived in a council estate in, in Nottingham. I, like many uh, uh, people from that kind of background, I was the first one to go to university, to go to higher education. My parents were, were there were virtually no books in the house. It wasn't a, a house that had lots of educational opportunities 
uh, within it. Uh, I used to go to the library every week with my mother when I was very small, and she would get lots of books out, The Saint and The Baron and all, all these sorts of detective novels. And I used to read all of those as, as a small child. But in terms of, uh, in terms of ambition, my, my father always said that his father, who was a labourer, um, his ambition for his son was that he would um, have a trade, and that's what happened. My father had a trade, so he had a you know went through an apprenticeship and became a, a, a plasterer. And my father's ambition for me was that I would never put on overalls. That was the thing that that he said. You know, you need an office job. You know, that's what you need to do, to get out of this this physical labour bit. And you know, I can. My father was not there that much. He was he used to work all the t- literally all the time. So that was the kind of uh, background that I had. And I learned lots of lots of things uh, from that, which I still, you know, hold to today. I, I still believe that out there, in unlikely circumstances, there are some hugely talented people that we need to get to and to encourage and support them so that they can do, you know, great things with their lives. So you said you were the first person that went to university in your yeah. family. So did you feel quite a lot of pressure then to go on and do something with that opportunity? Um, well, yes, in the sense that I had to get a job, I had to get a career. University was the a way in which I could get, you know, get on in the world. And you know, it's very different. So I've got two two sons who are in their thirties, and they spent quite a lot of time, sort of wandering around, thinking about what they wanted to do. I was very clear that I had to get out of university and get a proper job with a career and a a future to it to make the most of what I'd been given because I genuinely felt privileged. So what do you think, you know, people really talk a lot about your passion for patients. Where do you think that stemmed from? Was it from something in your childhood or growing up or did it come later? Um, I think... You know, I like people, and I genuinely—I'm not a religious person, but I do—I I do believe in people, in humanity, and and all the rest of it. And if and if people are in are in trouble or or, or have got problems, then I feel an overriding responsibility to do something about it. I know it's a it's a strange thing to to say, but I I have never had problems about taking responsibility for things. I take responsibility for absolutely everything, and uh, the particular thing I think that. That, that affected me was my father, who had worked his, you know, worked the whole of his life. He'd worked really hard in a very hard physical job. And in his early 50s, he developed emph- emphysema and asthma. He was a plasterer, so he would always say it was the dust. My guess was it was much more to do with the 40 park drive cigarettes a day he used to smoke. But he was certainly in denial about that until later. And you could see a man who was very physically active, degenerate over a number of years. I remember one year in particular, he was admitted 14 times to the acute hospital. And the thing that struck me about all of that is that one day a a lady knocked on the door and she was a respiratory nurse and she'd come along to talk to him. And after that, he was almost never admitted. It was just a very simple intervention that would help him understand his illness so he could take control over it. And all of that, I think, you know, kind of focused my attention on what's what's needed. It's interesting that that was so long ago. And yet when you talked about your dad like that in that way, I'm thinking about patients that I know that 
could really benefit from better support at home. And this is so many years later, we're still having that that same conversation. Yeah. So you, you said that you went, to, which university did you go to? I went to, well, actually, I didn't go to a university. I was, uh, I went to what was called Bristol Polytechnic. I started off uh, doing physiology, biochemistry and mathematics. Um, I was, I'd done science all the way through school. Not particularly, I was a particularly good scientist, to be honest, but my father and my family thought that science was a good thing. You know, you would get a good job out of, of all of that. I wanted to be a pharmacist, I think, at the end of my schooling, but didn't get the grades at A-level to do it. So I did physiology and biochemistry. Um, hated it, absolutely hated it. Abs- I cannot tell you how much I hated it. And I transferred to, onto history and politics. Quite tra- traumatic for everybody because it was as if I was rebelling against my family. I wasn't. It's was just I hated physiology, biochemistry. So, so you didn't go to Oxbridge, probably unlike most people that you ended up working with. Do you think that influenced the way that you behaved as a leader or, or things later on? It was, it was um, I mean, what, what I would say about healthcare management, and I was on the general management training scheme, it is remarkably democratic compared with the civil service. So I really came into contact with the kind of what you might describe as the Oxbridge elite when I went into the civil service. And it was, a, you know, quite a, I mean, I wouldn't say I've got a chip on my shoulder about my background and all the rest of it, but I am acutely conscious of me, the way they looked at me, the way they talked to me. I mean, one of the things about my career is that generally speaking, I've been underestimated in almost every job that I've been in. In a sense, I've, I've sort of encouraged it a bit. But it's amazing how quickly you can be pigeonholed as a slightly, you know, uncouth kind of northern, although Nottingham is certainly not the north, you know, northern person, and pigeonholed into particular, particular things. And I was acutely aware of that in that part of my career. That impact on your on your self confidence. Where did your confidence then come from? Um, well. It, it does affect. It, it, I suppose it does affect your confidence at one level. But I am a. I'm at the sort of. I'm at the introvert end of the of the spectrum. I live inside my own head. So I sort of. I listen very carefully to people. I listen to what they're saying. I try and process and understand it, and then I kind of respond or whatever so I'm not the sort of person who goes into a room and immediately says this is what we're going to do this is how we should do it this is this is the way or my view on this particular policy is this that the other or whatever I tend to sit there and watch and listen and learn so it's not and I and and then I do have the confidence to to speak when I think I've kind of understood where we're coming from but my confidence, if that's what you want to describe it, comes from a sense of mission. And once I get it, understand it and can articulate it, then nothing will stop me. A lack of confidence or otherwise would not stop me saying my piece or doing what I think is the right thing to do. So speaking about that, that sense of mission, it sounds like at the early part of your career, you had a very particular mission in mental health because you spent about a decade, I think, working in mental health and understand you were involved in closing down some of the old asylums. 
you spent a long time there. So I was just interested to know what, what did you learn from working with learning disabilities and mental health? I think, I think the first thing, the reason I decided to work in that area to begin with is I thought I could make a greater personal impact. You know, I know it's not quite like that this anymore, but the way I saw it looking at the healthcare system was that acute hospitals were basically a factory, but they kind of, they took patients in, they treated them, then they sent them out. And as a manager coming from a general management perspective, there was relatively limited things, effects I could have on the quality of care of those patients. I was wrong, but that's how I, I thought it. But what I did believe, was that in the big changes that were going on in mental health and learning disabilities, as a manager, I could have a much greater impact on the individual experiences and outcomes for those, for those residents. It was, it was so that I could do something, in a sense, and that's why I chose it. I then went off to work in a big asylum, and if ever you need you know, uh, to think about institutionalisation or normalizing poor care those institutions and indeed we have problems today with places like Winterbourne or we had with Winterbourne View how quickly organizations go bad and you know those in those days it was perfectly acceptable in that particular learned disability hospital for example um, to have communal toothbrushes it wasn't thought that people would have individual toothbrushes all the underwear was communal and, and it was just it was it was just how it was, and everyone everyone accepted it. Uh, and so I worked very closely with uh, a fantastic chief nurse called Harry Clibbins, and we absolutely took the whole thing apart. We completely reconstructed the way in which we looked at and supported those individuals. Completely changed the way in which we delivered the care and moved the vast majority of them out into ordinary houses, supported living in the community. And even today, I still keep in contact with one or two of those people who moved out. It completely changed, changed their, their lives. It's amazing to think about that quality of care. Not, I mean, it's not that long ago, and I can't even imagine that in, in this day and age. But clearly that experience really stayed with you as well, because your sons both went on to work in learning disabilities, which is, is, yes. it must come from your influence. And I understand that you also very quietly donated your bonuses as as you got more senior to learning disability charities despite the press accusing you of being greedy and taking that home you were very quietly donating it to a learning disability charity all the time That's, yeah I, i've continued my my interest in the in the whole issue around people with with learning disabilities you know they need as many advocates as we can possibly Again, in terms of improving services, I mean, it always struck me that it was slightly bizarre that I got paid very well for doing a job, but then they gave me an extra bit of money for doing it. Well, it was my job to do it. So it was, it was sensible for me to use it in that way. So you kind of took that mission that you had there about improving the quality of care and mental health, and it clearly became broader and broader. And I know I'm skipping forward quite a number of years, but I'm quite keen to get on to your time at NHS England. I mean, you essentially invented NHS England, so I, I really want to hear from you the story of how that all came about. I mean, just to, just as an, an aside, uh, for the first period of, of uh of time that I was the chief executive of the NHS, I was accountable to a minister 
I didn't have a board or anything, which is a very different job to when you've got a a board and what Simon inherited. And the the thing about all of that, I applied for the job. Uh, interestingly, I, and you should really get her on to interview her, Ruth Carnell was particularly supportive in my application. Um, in fact, she forced me to apply. When she talked to me about going for the job, I said, they don't really want people like me as, a, as the chief executive of the NHS. At the end of the day, I see myself as a pit pony. And uh, she would have none of it and gave me a hard time. Anyway, I, I did apply in the end. What's a pit, a pit pony? A pit pony. Okay, well, a pit <laughs> pony. Their basic job was to pull the coal up to the surface through the tunnels. And that's how I saw myself as a worker, as somebody who made stuff happen, who wasn't in it really for glory, but actually was in for that. And um, I was, I'm being slightly uh, too modest there, I think. But, and, and when I got the job, Ruth gave me a picture of a pit pony got on my wall. <laughs> I love the way that she's been your someone there clearly advocated for you and how important that is in leadership roles. No, it is. And, and it's that nudge occasionally when you think about it. And, you know, the way the way when I applied for the job, one of the things about this job, and, and I think it's going on at the moment, I can see it in the health service journal, the rest of it, when you're trying to you know, appoint these jobs, everyone gets so focused on who is it and What's the political process and who's, who's likely to have the politicians on their side? You've got to be able to answer this, the point, why do you want to do the job? And for me, it was to, to make great things happen for, for patients. And what would you do? And in my, my pitch, for what it's worth, was quality as the organising principle. You know, that was my, my pitch that we got so obsessed and focused on reform for its own sake, that we'd lost the point of why we were there. You talked there about reform, just doing it for its own good, and yet you had to live through quite a significant reform with Lansley. I know that maybe we won't get bogged down in the detail of exactly what happened, but really keen to hear about your reflections on that whole time and, and what you learned maybe about making change. Well, one of the things about that time, I was a civil servant at that time. In most civil servants' career, they'd never seen a change of government from one party to another because the Conservatives have been in post for a long time. So we did a lot of work with the Cabinet Secretary and the Permanent Secretaries about how we would deal with a different kind of government. And the big lesson they learned, or so they said at that, was that when Labour came in in 1997, they were very suspicious of the existing civil service. And so what they did was they introduced a whole range of special advisors. So they almost had a sort of parallel system. And the cabinet secretary was determined that wouldn't, wouldn't happen this time. So our job was to delight ministers. You know, he wanted us to get in there, get really inside of them and make them feel that we were going to help them do the things that they needed to do. Um, and they also believed that you didn't need a strong centre. So you didn't need a strong number 10. Before the election, I had the opportunity to meet uh, Andrew Lansley as part of the briefing process that goes on when uh, governments are, uh, are changing. And I was absolutely astounded. I, I just simply could not believe it. It worked. He had a, this all singing, all dancing set of reforms that covered absolutely everything. 
you know, it, it was absolutely remarkable. I mean, a remarkable intellectual construct that he had. But, you know, completely, for me, completely outside anything I'd really understood. And, but he was very determined and it was very clear that he'd worked it out. Uh, so we had quite an interesting conversation. And during that conversation, Andrew Lansley said to me that he didn't think that I was the right person to lead the NHS. That because of my background and all the rest of it, they didn't see me as a person who could take the NHS forward. I said, fair, fair enough, yeah, that's life. That's, uh, sometimes it doesn't go well. Anyway, the election came on, he was, uh, he was appointed, he came in uh, clearly uh, as a you know, good civil servant and as a, uh, a manager. I tried to help him, but I know it was clear it wasn't going to work. And so I was going through the process of negotiating my redundancy package. That's what I was, I was doing. And at the very last minute, I was going in on the Wednesday for the Cabinet's office to sign off my redundancy package. And on the Tuesday, Andrew asked me out for breakfast. And he said he changed his mind, that he decided that I was the person that he needed to uh, take the NHS forward and that would I stay. So I said I'd give it sort of 24 hours to think it through. I, I asked a number of colleagues, including, in, interestingly, Ruth, so she's partially responsible for this. I, I decided for two, for two reasons uh, that I would do it. One, I thought I could make something of it. We can all debate whether I'm successful at that. And secondly, I thought that I, I was slightly, you know, I can't describe it slightly. I thought I was the only person who could do it. You know, I was, I was slightly obsessed with myself as, as, as having the ability to make the thing work. Perhaps we slightly overestimated my ability there, but I said I'd do it. And then I started setting up NHS England. So you were, you were having to delight ministers as well, and a minister who told you you weren't fit for the job. I mean, did you just put that to bed, or was that, did that bother you at any point? Um, well, not really. I mean, I, I actually quite liked Andrew Lance. He is a decent man with, with the right kind of values. But he came from a sort of conservative policy background and had a sort of iron confidence in his ability to understand how a healthcare system worked and design it personally himself, which is an extraordinary thing. So he had a very strong sort of sense of his own abilities here. But what, what became very clear, for him anyway, was that in order to make it happen, First of all, he had to engage much better with the NHS, and he, he just didn't know how to. Well, at one point, I said to him, look, Andrew, there are only two people in the country at the moment who support your reforms, you and me, and I don't really support them anyway. But he, he, just, he said, just bring them in, and I will persuade them. So we had an endless line of people, the General Secretary of the Royal College of Nursing, the BMA, they would come in and he would explain his system to the extent that he could. Interestingly, I have to say that some of them, when sat in the room with the minister, did not express the opposition at all. I do smile sometimes when I see some people going on about what a dreadful disaster it was when they sat in front of a minister and went, yes, very, very good, yes, see how we can, you know, all of those sorts of things. But he was just convinced that he could. So you kind of... When you work with ministers, and he was the fourth Secretary of State I've worked with, 
you, you work with people who are coming from a particular background. But I mean, one, one of the things I had to keep saying to him was, have you thought about the politics of this, Andrew? And he was the politician. But once he decided I could, I was the person to do it, he let me get on and make some changes. Not all the changes I thought we needed to make, but I made some. But you weren't entirely convinced by his plan. Oh, no. Well, it was, it was not workable. I mean, it wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to do what he, what he said he wanted. And in a sense, my, when you say it out loud, it sounds slightly strange, I know. But my, my plan was to mitigate the worst excesses of it. That was what I was trying to do. So, I mean, the most disappointing thing, of course, is we just got high-quality care for all, the Aragazi led. And we'd appointed, we'd, for the first time, we'd appointed a medical director into the NHS. We were starting to get ourselves in the right place. I think if we'd have spent the next seven or eight years just implementing high-quality care for all, we'd be in a fantastically better and different place. But that that didn't happen. So, it's you know, it's pointless uh, saying it. But But... Uh, we spent so much time and so much effort for so little effect. That was the tragedy of it. But what I was determined to do was to, first of all, make sure that the wheels didn't fall off while we're going through this. And there was a point where, you know, the NHS could have dissolved really around all of this. So make sure the wheels don't fall off, but also create NHS England that in itself, possibly in the future, could turn into something, you know, which was really worth having. So I worked with Bruce in particular to think about how we would how we would create a kind of clinical voice and a clinical heart to that organization. Now people can debate how successful we were, but the way we tried to create it with the national clinical directors, with with a medical director, with a big team to do all that, we tried to change the way that we would do it. And I'd say we were partially successful, but not completely before I before I left. And when you look at it now from the outside, do you think it's still doing what you hoped it was going to be set up to do? Um, in parts, I think it, it works really well. I think the problem for it is that it's too large and bureaucratic. And that inevitably, because it has lots of things to do, we gave it lots of functions and perhaps we gave it too many functions and didn't really focus on the clinical heart to it. Because if you want to make change happen in the NHS or any healthcare system, really, it has to be supported and led by clinical staff. And if you haven't, as an organisation, got the legitimacy to do that, then you've got a real problem trying to make change happen. And I don't think we've spent enough time focusing on that as opposed to the kind of bureaucracy just sort of on a slight tangent then, what, would you, what advice would you give to Simon's successor? Well, I'd, I'm not sure whether I'd give them any advice at all, to be honest. I, <laughs> I, there's, there's nothing worse than old blokes going around <laughs> you know, giving their su- successors, successors advice. Uh, but I do, I do think that the whole reason that it is there is to improve outcomes for patients and improve the health of the population. That's what it is there for. And it does that by creating an environment where you've got happy and contented staff. So focus on the mission. Reinvent your mission, if you like. Make it absolutely clear. And then get rid of all the stuff that doesn't do that. 
and that is the kind that is the tough thing to do absolutely I'm really keen David to think about what it was like for you when you were doing that role I mean you were in charge of a you know a 90 billion pound budget 1.3 million employees maybe you were driven by the mission and it didn't feel daunting I don't know but I'd love to know were there any times where you did just feel a bit out of your depth I always felt out of my depth I, I, I don't see out of my depth was the right thing but you know it was fairly scary some of the stuff that you did really you would make big decisions you know that could have, have big effects across a whole load of lot of people and you're always worried about the unintended consequences you know there's lots of examples of well-meaning things that people want to do but have the opposite effect to what you expected them, them 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 to do so that that was the the worry you have to in those jobs that there are sometimes where you have to make a big judgment and some of them you get right most of them hopefully you get right but one or two of them you don't get get right and um that is the worry but once i'd made the decision once you've decided down a path then you have to you know really prosecute it really make it make make it happen but the the thing but it is a it, it's a different job now to what it was when i when i did it i i was a you know i i'm i'm genuinely i'm of the, the the belief that that i have a personal responsibility to be the best i can possibly be at what i do whatever it, whether it's the chairman of a trust whether it's the chief executive of the nhs and you have to do stuff to make that happen and one of the things i did as chief executive was I joined a benchmarking club of top 200 global chief executives across the world. And basically what happened, we all used to download our diaries into a great big machine uh, and they would then categorise what the kind of activities that we have and then feed them back to us. And as you can imagine, my mine was very different to other chief executives. This is not just healthcare systems, this is Apple, Google, all of those sorts of things. And the two big differences with the kind of job that you have to do at, at that level is I spent more time than any other chief executive in that group telling other people what I'd done. It's kind of described as accountability, I guess. So I would spend a lot of time at public accounts committees, health select committees. We had prime minister's stock takes, public administration committee, going to, to be held accountable for what was going on in the in the NHS, and there's a lot of that in the in the job. And the other bit that's very different is that the amount of time you spend stopping stupid things happening. Most chief executives basically spend their time doing things they want to do and you know driving their strategy forward. That job, you do spend quite a bit of time stopping the most stupid things happening that you can possibly imagine. And it is, it is relentless that, depending on where you are and what politicians are, in, are involved in, there's a thousand ideas a minute coming out of special advisors, coming out of political processes, coming out of, you know, one minister would have dinner parties on a Saturday and he would come out with a whole load of, you know, but it, it is quite time-consuming stopping stupid things happening. And, of course, you get no, not that I was in it to get plaudits, but you get very few plaudits when you do something and, 
and someone says, I don't like that, then you said, well, you should have seen what it would have been like. You know, it doesn't help anybody. Definitely. And I saw that at my my brief time that I spent at NH England, was there was a lot of time just pushing stuff behind a door that no one else can see, which is quite frustrating. But I definitely hear that. I was interested to hear sort of what you thought your staff felt about you as a leader. And did you did you have a deliberate leadership style in that role? Um, when you appoint, when you're a chief executive, all the other members of your team have the ability to get you fired. So I was very circumspect about the team that I brought together, which I did. I did. And it was a fantastic, it was a fantastic team. Like all chief executives, you know, I'll sit there and say I, I delegated a lot and I allowed people there the things that they wanted to do and I supported them and developed them and all the rest of it. And you've had some on here and, you know, some may agree with that. But I genuinely believe when you appoint someone to a senior job, you know, first of all, you invest in their success. So, you know, you really want the people who you appoint to succeed. I know some... I've seen it myself. Sometimes chief executives almost appoint people and then are neutral about whether they do well or badly. You know, I absolutely invest in people's uh, success. I try and support and help them in the best way I can, but I also give them lots of headroom. You know, my job is to set the direction in a sense, but how they how it's done has to be left to them. So that was that was the first thing. And the second thing I, I think I, I learned is in big national central organisation, not just national, but any, any organisation which is kind of centralising stuff, there is a big danger that the chief executive sees the organisation as basically supporting them. So that's what the organisation is for, is to make the chief executive look good. Um, and um, uh, then they lose interest in actually how the, the organisation is managed internally. But that's a really important part of it. It really struck me when I was the chief executive in Birmingham, the black country, wandering around once, uh, and there's about 100 people worked in the, in the SHA. And on every desk, people were talking to uh, people in the service, in service managers and, and, and all the rest of it. So I spent a lot of time explaining to people who worked for us why we were doing what we were doing and how we thought that framework might work. So I spent a lot of time doing that. So I spent a little bit more time probably internally focused in that sense than perhaps my predecessors and successors have done. But I genuinely believe that that is how you make an effective organisation. That's really interesting, David. Thank you. So you said about investing in your staff and not being not being neutral, investing in their growth and development, but also making sure they understand what they are there to do, which is not necessarily just to serve the chief executive. Um, what do you think they thought of you? Um, well, uh, I, I mean, obviously, I did three sixty degree ref- and all that sort of that that kind of stuff. Uh, so I've got, I had proper feedback. You know, I think what people said on the positive side for me is clarity that I kind of make it very clear what's expected and very clear what the mission the mission is, and articulated that very well. I think people recognised that my focus was to deliver great care. That's why I joined the, the organisation and that's what I wanted to see. I think they thought that I had integrity, that I, di- I, you know, I am not one of those. You know, sometimes chief executives spend quite a lot of time gossiping about other things and I'm, I'm not a, 
I'm not in that category. I don't, I don't speculate wildly about a whole load of people who work with me or for me or, or, or whatever. And they uh, would say, I think, that I was relentless in the pursuant of our objective. Um, on the downside, people would say that I lived too much in my own head. And so people were, so, were often quite shocked when I said something because they hadn't been on the process I'd been on inside my own head to get there. So it came as a kind of slight surprise when I said that. I think people would would say that sometimes I wasn't perhaps as effusive in my praise of them than perhaps I might have been. And I did try really hard to change that. Uh, certainly in the roles that I take now, I do spend quite a bit of time doing that sort of thing, but it does not come naturally to me. And the third thing is that I do have, you know, a sense of humour. And sometimes this sense of humour is misinterpreted. You know, I think I'm quite funny. You know, I know this is <laughs> terrible. Yeah. And, 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 and so sometimes I try and be funny, and it's, not, and it's completely and utterly inappropriate. So they're, they're, the sorts of, they're the sorts of things which are about behavioural stuff, really, rather than my ability to deliver the objectives or the mission that I'm involved in. That's very insightful. And a certain Sir Bruce Keogh told me that you had a strap line at the end of your 360. One of them. They came up with a strap line which encapsulated all of the 360 degrees of literally, I mean, there were literally hundreds of people involved in this. And the, the strap line was, we love you, you evil bastard. <laughs> um, which, I don't know if you can say that on a podcast. I'm not particularly proud of. I'm pr proud of the love bit. I'm <laughs> less proud of the of the evil bit because I, I never quite saw myself as uh, as evil. And in, in in a sense, one of the things that I learned from all of that is the you know reinforcing the point I made earlier about giving people a bit more a bit more support and a bit more love and a bit more positive feedback. You're more likely to get better outcomes than than the alternative. Just briefly on the, you mentioned earlier about you are on the I end of the spectrum. And I always think that word introvert is quite difficult because there's lots of stereotypes associated with it. It's a bit more nuanced than just being quiet. But clearly you get, you know, you are quite introspective. You're quite reflective. And a lot of the leaders that I've had on the podcast, uh, you're married to one as well as, you know, they're very much extroverts. Do you think that as an introvert, you had to adapt? in order to lead at that level of seniority that you did? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, leadership, generally speaking, I think is contextual. You know, you can lead in a particular way based on the circumstances that you find yourself in. And what you need to do as a leader, in a sense, is to practice the bits that you don't always feel comfortable with, because at some stage you will need them. You know, the, the most obvious example would be, I don't know, if, you, if you're thinking about doing vaccinations, we all know what you need to do to deliver a vaccination programme. There's, there's virtually a handbook on it. And all you've got to do is get everybody to just do it. Two, if, for example, you were trying to tackle something like childhood obesity. Because nobody quite knows what, how to do that. And in a sense, you have to do a bit of it, learn a bit, change the way you do it, then do a bit more. So you have to be able to operate in very different environments. And as I say, sometimes some people, and, and I'm no different, I, I am 
you know, much more at home doing some things than others. But it's really important to make sure that you you do them all. So, for example, I, you know, in the way I work, I work much more effectively with a small group of people working through the issues, thinking about them, deal with them and all the rest of it. But sometimes you have to speak in front of 10,000 people, you know, and sometimes, worst of all, you have to go into a room with a whole load of people and, and meet them all for the first time and, uh, you know, be charming or whatever the right word, word is. And over time, I've had to develop those ends of it. And it absolutely exhausts me. And yet I can, I can go on, on the other side. You know, uh, one particular day I remember well in the, uh, as chief executive, I did 22 meetings in a day. And I was exhilarated at the end of it. So you have to do all of these. It's all part of the job. It's just some of them take a lot more effort than others. And as I say, for me, it's interacting with large groups of people, many of whom I've not met before, I find particularly exhausting. Yeah, that's a really good description of introversion and extroversion, because I think it's about where mm. you get your energy from. And clearly, you, yeah. you don't get it from speaking to large audiences. And um, Bruce said you'd quite happily sit in silence, if, if you with, especially with people like him. Yeah, companionable silence was the <laughs> thing. Bruce and I would sit there and just leave the silence to go. And of course, some people, as you know, I'm married to one, will fill every single opportunity with, with words. I think my husband would love it if I could just sit in companionable silence with him <laughs> sometime. So thinking back to your role as Chief Exec of the NHS and thinking about what gives you energy and what what might drain it I mean people often describe watershed moments times that are really difficult but teach them a lot and I'm sure you know that I'm thinking as I ask this question about mid-staffs and forgive me if it's too personal but I just wondered if you might be able to share some reflections on what what it was like for you during that whole period yeah, it's, it's, quite a, it, it's a quite a difficult issue in the sense that I haven't really spoken about it. I don't speak about it, no, not because I've not thought about it, but inevitably it wasn't all about me. You know, it was all about those people who were harmed by poor care in that hospital. It, you know, it gets construed as, yeah, it was all about you. You know, it, it absolutely wasn't all about me. But it was a, you know, a time. Interestingly, only yesterday I was talking to one of uh, the candidates for the chief executive job who was asking me about that time in terms of how do you get yourself ready for something like that? And I think there were some pretty low, low points. But can I just say, you know, my experience was nothing compared with the families and their relatives. I just put it in that context. I think the, the depth of it was, I remember lying on the floor of a van with a carpet over me, being driven out of a meeting to be hidden from the cameras. And, and you know, and I, I, I remember lying in, on this, on this thing, what on earth am I doing? Why have I got myself into this place? And, you know, on reflection, I was, at the time, I was at the time a civil servant. And you have to understand about the difference between being a civil servant and being the chief executive of NHS England is that you, you know, when ministers tell you to do things, you're supposed to do them. You know, and when you speak, you speak on behalf of ministers. 
So I always remember being in number 10 around all of that. And uh, Prime Minister at that time, David Cameron, and uh, talking to me about all of this. And the advice and what they said to me was that they were going to support me. They thought it was, you know, that the campaign that was being launched to get me fired was, was unfair and unjust. Uh, but there were some conditions to it. And the weirdest, there were two conditions. Nowadays, I would not have accepted, but I did at the time. One of them was I shouldn't speak, uh, do an, an interview. I couldn't do anything. And as part of that, I was not allowed to be photographed. And then the second thing was I always had to wear a tie, which I was sort of slightly weird. That if they did photograph me, I was supposed to have a tie, not a T-shirt in the back garden sort of thing. And my natural position on all of this is to speak out. My natural way mm. of doing things would have been being combative about it, and I wasn't. How and did I that kind feel, of though? that must have felt well, it was, so it was, again in the context of the other people that suffered. It wasn't much, but you know uh, there was. It was a horrible time. One of the things that you don't understand until you get into that is that um, lots of these newspapers they don't. It's not their reporters that you have the problem with. There's a whole load of freelance people who start trying to get stories that they then will sell to them. So, you know, I had the, the stuff that you, you'll have seen, the camped outside your house, the chasing you to the shops, the, the, they, they went after and offered money to my ex-wife to talk. You know, all of that's going on. And you, you're, you're almost helpless in that. And it's very, it, it, it's very hard. There were death threats. I had police protection at one point. You know, it, it just... It, it, in that sort, when you're in the eye of that storm, it is absolutely extraordinary. But uh, you know, as I say, uh, you as a leader, you just you have to just you have to deal with it. And the way I dealt with it was, uh, you know, I had a very strong family around me. Uh, I also had a sense of mission. I knew what I'd done. I knew what what I'd done in what order. I knew the actions that I'd taken. And I knew that I, I could work a way of taking us forward out of all of this. And, what, and because I had all that, and I can literally sit, you know, look in front of the mirror and tell myself and live with it, I could do, I could do it. Wow. I mean, that is just incredible. Thank you for being so honest about how that felt. I mean, you, you were not even leading at that time for very long in terms of being in charge of the organisation. It was only a matter of months. And yet, what also really strikes me from this conversation already is that you're clearly somebody who is absolutely dedicated to championing quality. You cannot stand poor standards. And you are so very much driven by ensuring that the best leaders are connected to the worst of the problems. And yet, you know, that is completely at odds with all of the allegations that were thrown at you completely it's so disconnected that I just can't really quite get my head around how that would have how that would have felt well well but the other thing of course is I had a job you know I had to do stuff you know so so the strange thing at the time but while all that was going on I was setting up NHS England so it wasn't as if I could dwell on it very much it sort of it saps your strength. There's no mm. there's no doubt about that. But uh, I could throw myself into developing NHS England and get the thing done. Really. Do you think leaders really need to have a thick skin in that sense in order to be able to carry on? Because even just hearing you speak, I sort of think 
you don't you don't sound like you were that tempted to just hide under a rock or disappear altogether. You clearly have a lot of inner resilience and a lot of strength. No, I hid under a carpet. Um, <laughs> so so I did I did do a bit of that. I and, he, and uh, so um, you do have to have you do have to have res resilience. I don't think I'm particularly thick skinned though. In strange way, I kind of. You know, I understood what was being said, and I understood why it was happening. Uh, but the thing that always kept me going was my faith in my own abilities, I think. And, and that's an important thing to have. But I still have a little gang of people who follow me around who, uh, who don't like me very much. You know, you just get on with it. Leadership these days, particularly with social media and all the rest of it, every decision that you take becomes contested and particularly at the national level they all get contested so if you're if you if you don't want your decisions to be contested you either have to operate a secret life so no one knows what you're doing which is increasingly difficult but i i see why people do that or you have to be able to deal with the contestation of it if that's a if that's a word um you have to you have to be able to handle when, when i was the chief executive of a hospital I went off to work at the region, which was part of the, the Department of Health. And I used to go to meetings. And when I was the chief executive, I would sit there and I go, yeah, it's very interesting. We've done that. We've done that. Right. Now, what we're going to do is this. And everyone would basically come in behind me and we would, we would do it. When I went to work in the department, I would say something like that and everyone go oh i don't agree with that oh that's not that's not right oh i don't and we'd have an argument about it and at first i got really irritated by it all you know i thought well just hold on a minute I, i've just said what's gonna happen um but actually it was really powerful because it made me think much better and create my arguments better and on you know and and so listen to people better so i think you know if you want to be a leader these days you need to, you need to get used to people contesting what you're saying and that's a good thing because it'll make you better and i i think you know it's about focusing on on the problem at hand not trying to focus on attacking the person that's the distinction it's it's all about that's, disagreeing with the with the problem on the table yeah people find that very hard and i agree with you completely and you know i will absolutely always go for the issue so on a slightly more positive note, David, you've kind of alluded to this already a little bit, but you're clearly a fan of clinicians as leaders. And if there are people listening who are maybe slightly put off by what you had to experience um, with the mid-staff scandal, doctors and clinicians in particular who are thinking about leadership or already in leadership roles, what do you think their role is in shaping the healthcare system? Um, I mean, it was one of the things that. Um... When I stopped working in mental health services, I went off to run an acute hospital. And largely, I went to do it because to just to test myself to see whether I could do it. And what I learned there was there is, there is nothing you can't deliver in an organization if you've got a united group of clinicians who work with managers. And, you know, we certainly in that, in, in the job that I had there and in subsequent jobs, when things have been driven by clinicians, you get better buy-in, you get more focus on outcomes for patients. 
and you get better delivery. And that is the kind of heart of how we're going to make change happen in the, in the NHS. It's not, however, turning clinicians into middle managers. And I perfectly get this. In my experience of working with doctors, I have some fantastic experience of working with doctors, all clinicians, but doctors in particular, is that sometimes doctors feel they need to understand everything and to be able to do everything before they can actually lead. And that's just not true. We need you in leadership positions in our healthcare system, in the NHS, because you're a doctor. So the trick is, how can you use that leadership experience and knowledge, not a whole load of technical stuff around how to read a budget statement or all those sorts of things. It's important to understand the broad context, but not to do it. And that is where we'll get real, real benefit out of it. But it's absolutely vital. I mean, one of the things about our own system is that traditionally doctors have not taken the most senior leadership positions. In most other healthcare systems that I've worked in over the last few years, doctors play a much greater role in all of this. At its, at its best, it's brilliant. At its worst, they are basically middle managers. So I would absolutely encourage people to do it. We've got some really tricky decisions to make about the way in which we deliver care. And if clinicians are not at the forefront of that, we simply won't make the right decisions. Thank you, David. And you talked briefly there about learning from other countries. So just as we come sort of to the final few questions, I'm curious to know, I believe that you spent most of your career in the NHS. And then when you retired, particularly, you spent some time working in other countries. What were your key take home messages from that global experience that you think we should learn from? Okay. It, it is one of the downsides for chief executives in the NHS is that we don't get exposure to all the healthcare systems. It was impossible for me to go and uh, I got lots of invitations to go and look at all the healthcare systems when I was the chief executive, but couldn't accept them largely because as the politicians would say to me, the front page of the Daily Mail will be Nicholson off on a jolly while patients are dying over here, which is a real shame, actually, because there's a lot to learn. And I've spent the last uh, six years or so working in 20 different countries, helping governments think about how they might implement universal health care. And uh, there's a whole series of things I've learned, learned from that, not least of all. There is no blueprint here. There is no perfect healthcare system which you can kind of supplant from one country to, to, an, to another. Um, healthcare grows out of the lived experience of communities, of, uh, of countries, of, of regions, of the people. And you need to build on the back of that. But what you can do is you can learn a lot from others. One of the things that you find is that healthcare systems are parochial, all of them. Uh, they all look inside themselves. Very few of them look outside to learn the fantastic lessons that they, they could do. And ours is no different. In fact, ours is a particularly developed form. And one thing that struck me, you know, when I first started to work out in China, Taiwan and Korea, everyone that I met talked about SARS. You know, everywhere you went, every hospital, whatever you said, they were all into SARS, what had happened, how they managed it. And I kind of had a general idea about what it was but hadn't really it hadn't brought you know 
been internalized to me about what the issue was. And they were madly putting together their arrangements for the next wave of SARS. We were in splendid isolation over here. And I have no doubt that if we'd have been more outward facing and engaged with global healthcare, we would have made a much better job of dealing with COVID than we we did. So it's not a kind of added extra. This whole world healthcare system that's going out there and this sort of parochialism that we have, both in the country and also in our healthcare system, you know, it costs lives. It is really worth engaging in that, in that global system. We can learn so many lessons, I think, from other systems. Absolutely. I wonder if going forwards, whether we'll take that lesson from COVID and, and change the way that we look at healthcare around the world. Yeah. So, David, I'm, I'm so conscious of your time. I've taken up far more of your time than I had intended. So I'm sorry mm. about that. But we can't not talk about about your wife and about life at home because you are the male equivalent of a wag. You are married to a celebrity in Sarah Jane Marsh, who's a fabulous leader and, of course, has been on the podcast. And particularly what I'm interested to know about is she talked on her podcast about your two young children, Rosa and Ronnie, and how they very much expect their dad to be around, you know, perhaps more so than than their mum. And that's quite unusual. And I often get people on this podcast who are mums talking about their children, but I don't often hear dads talking about doing childcare. So just interested to know, how do you balance things at home with Sarah Jane? Yeah, it is It is a very strange uh, to be- to have to live with a force of nature, a, a cross between, as I describe it, Mary Poppins and Genghis Khan. <laughs> um, uh, it is, it is different. I mean, what I would say from my own, my own, my own perspective, I, I was uh, married in the past, and I had two sons. But when they were sort of between the age of, I don't know, five and ten, I was basically absent. I wasn't there. You know, I was making my way in the world. I was building my career. I was, you know, doing all the things. And all right, like lots of fathers, I can point to, but we had a great day out here and I did a really good thing there. But you weren't there for getting them up in the morning, getting them their breakfast, getting them to school and all of that. And I I really did miss out on all of that. I have no no doubt. So the opportunity to have a second go and try and do it properly is it it's been enormously important for me and again it's not the the days out or whatever it's the the, just the routine of living together with two young children it keeps me it keeps me I'm gonna say keeps me exhausted (laughs) it keeps me it keeps me going you know we we work really hard we don't have a a team of nannies and people like that to look after the children we 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 deal with it so um, maybe you're is, the real Mary Poppins at home. No, I don't. I, I wouldn't. I'd never describe myself <laughs> as Mary, as, as Mary Poppins. Um, but you don't know you've missed it until you've missed it, you know. And you know they're only five months. You know they're only six months. You only see them getting out of bed tired. You know that that particular time. So it is fantastically uh, rewarding from that person. In fact, I would say that you know every. Every man in his early 60s should remarry, have a young, ch- <laughs> young children. It revitalises. But, of course, that would be entirely inappropriate. I better and make sure would, my husband would, doesn't hear that. Would, would horrify, all of, your, <laughs> horrify all of your listeners. 
how is that compatible? I just want to ask genuinely, you are still a very senior leader with a very busy job. From what I understand, you do the drop-offs, you do the brownie run. How do you make that compatible with being a leader as a man particularly? When I left NHS England, I made a pact with myself that I would only do things I was interested in with people I liked on my terms. And in a sense, that's what I've done. So when they asked me to do the chair's job, I said, I will do it, but these are the terms. So I don't start work until 10 o'clock in the morning because I take the kids to school and sort all of that out. I don't work on a Monday. I have to do all the kind of stuff around the house to get it all, all sorted. And I don't do late nights. And, you know, I, I, can, I can see how, you know, even for me, people are not completely over moon by it. But that's what I, that's the huge thing that I have in my favour. I, I wouldn't do it if, it if they wouldn't allow me to do that. So, so that's it, really. That's very interesting and, and quite encouraging. I think even mm-hmm. I've got a two-year-old and even when I'm pushing back on things like evenings, I get that sort of, oh, you're just a mum. But I think hearing your, your experience gives me a bit more strength that you're absolutely right. They're only young ones. And it's very, very different talking to a, a man about it. So I think... And it goes, it, sorry, it also goes so fast. That's the thing that you yeah. don't realise. All right, in the moment you're there, it seems to go on forever. <laughs> but actually, suddenly you turn around and you go, heavens above, that's all gone. Yeah. You know, and you'll never get it back, ever. And so uh, treasure it. Thank you, Because it's a, both a wonderful thing to do and, and, uh, and a wonderful thing to be. Thank you, David. No, I really have taken up far more of your time than I promised. Um, so you've been very generous. I wondered if we could just finish with some quick fire questions, if that's okay. Um, yeah. You can expand if you wish, but they're, they're, meant to be quick. <laughs> they're meant to be quick fire. So what's something that people often get wrong about you? Um, they think I'm a lot fiercer than I actually am. I can definitely attest that you, you don't come across that fierce in this yeah. conversation. What's the last thing that you binged on Netflix? Do you, do you have Netflix? <laughs> I know I'm an old bloke. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> what do I binge on in Netflix? Um, I, don't, I don't really binge, really, on those sorts of things. I, I had a period where I binged, and I thought, you know, for me, it was... Game of Thrones, that sort of that sort of thing, because it reminded me so much of working in NHS England. <laughs> in fact, you might be might be interested. Just as a, an aside, one uh, we used to go uh, from NHS England. The board used to go off and visit different parts of the country, and we'd have a dinner at the night, a social event. And uh, on at least one of them, the issue that was posed was: if we were the Game of Thrones, who would we all be? Um, <laughs> So that was one. Another one we did was... Wait, hang uh, on a minute. We, who were you? I know, no. Who were you? Pardon? Who were you? I was, that, I was generally speaking that the father, the one who got killed sitting on the toilet. I forgot That name. one. Yeah. yeah, which just seems to be entirely appropriate. Another one was, <laughs> was um, if we were a carry-on film, which, which people we would, would be. So we, you know, we used to do that sort of thing. So, but <laughs> Game of Thrones probably the last thing I've been. Brilliant. I'll let you have that one. 
Um, can you give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that brings you great joy? Yeah, standing up from my seat uh, to the city ground, Nottingham, watching one of our players put the ball in the back of the net. And what would you say gives you energy? Uh, predominantly, I generate my own energy. I can sit there and work myself up into a frenzy of energy. Okay. Something that keeps you awake at night? Um, well, I've got it. I mean, at the moment, I chair two, two organisations. And the thing that's keeping me awake at night is the enormous amount of pressure on the uh, emergency departments at both, at both hospitals and the enormous sort of price that people in the NHS are paying for the efforts we've made over the last 12 months or so. Yeah, absolutely. Something you learned about yourself in lockdown? I'm not sure whether I did learn anything about myself from, from lockdown. I know that I can, I can deal with my own company. I can sit quietly for a long, for a long time on my own, which is, which is, which is fine. Um, I learned, I suppose, that I hate gardening. You know, I started to do gardening and I just don't like it. Uh, who was your favourite health secretary? Uh, Alan Johnson. Why do you say that? Um, well, he was a very decent man with great integrity and uh, was part of a, a, a mission for change. He also understood the difference between what a politician does and what the chief executive does, which not all of them do. And the final three, David, I understand you're quite a big reader. So interested to know in a book or several books that you would recommend people to read? Well, I'm slightly old fashioned in leadership terms, I know, because, uh, you know, I come from a different generation and I've enjoyed reading on a number of occasions. The book by a, a chap called Jack Walsh, who was the chief executive of GEC. Mm -hmm. And it's called From the Gut. I, there are problems with the book, I know, not least of all because there's lots of chapters about how the men all went away and made the decisions and then played golf while the women <laughs> talked about babies. And, and you know, it, it's of an age in that sense, but actually a good combination between intuition as an individual and also skills that you can learn. I think it's a really good way of thinking about uh, leadership. Brilliant. Thank you. I've not come across that yet. So from the gut. Thank yeah. you. And who would you cite as your biggest role model as a leader? I think, um, can I have one name but two people? Of course. It may, may sound strange. Well, Brian. So Brian Edwards was the regional director. So he's the regional general manager for the for Trent region. And he was a brilliant leader. And he created an environment in that region where basically the deal was look, I know that you are going to have to perform beyond everyone's expectations. I know you're going to have to, to deliver the services we need for our patients. Uh, and I know some of them you will make mistakes and some of you will fall off your perches because of it. But I will protect and support you when that happens. So I'll encourage you to take risks. I'll encourage you to innovate. Uh, but I will say that we will support you if it all goes wrong. And that was his kind of philosophy. Now, I know there are some holes in, in that, but he absolutely lived that. He was a brilliant, a brilliant person.
And the other person, of course, is Brian Clough, who was the, the manager of Nottingham Forest. I know football is not everyone's cup of tea, and I don't want to go on about it. But the, the thing about Clough, he took something which, be, which had become very complicated and made it very simple. You know, the, 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 whole, the whole thing about uh, when you've got a, a complex system, how do you work out uh, how to make it change? And what you do is you start off with a few simple rules. Uh, and in a sense, that's often what we try to do. We have a complex system. We need to work out how we make it change. And as I say, he was very good, simple rules about, you know, pass it to the next best player to you, you know, keep the ball on the ground, there's the goal, you know, all of those sorts of things. It just seemed to me a fantastic leader. And that, in a sense, has been my job to simplify where necessary, but make it absolutely clear what the path to success looks like, and then completely prosecute it. I really like that. Thank you, David. I am very happy to talk about football. I'm a big oh, Liverpool no. fan and so are my family. So, oh. Well, it's not football as I know it. I, I understand <laughs> what you mean. And, and finally, David, your top tips for new leaders who might be listening to this, please. Well, do it. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a contact sport. It's not, it's not a theoretical construct. You know, it's not something that you can, well, you can theorise it about it, but actually the way you learn is by doing it. So do it, but reflect on it. I always think that this, this improving it, trying something better out, is the way that you should go, go forward. And don't leave yourself at the door of the meeting room or whatever. The reason that you are identified in, as a leader is because of something intrinsically about yourself. And... You need to hold on to that. I see it, so I have certainly seen it in my career many times, where people have this idea about what a leader is, and then they try and be it. And everyone can see through it straight away. You build on your own intrinsic experiences and talents. I love that, David. Thank you. And I was thinking, as you were saying about being your true self, it's it's the same in medicine as well, that you can have this idea of what being a doctor should be like. But actually, when you're in that consultation room, you don't leave yourself outside the door. You bring that to your consultations. And the same is, I think, true for leadership. David, thank you so much for your time. I've absolutely loved speaking to you. I, I will confess, I was a bit nervous because of... Well, for lots of reasons, but you have a reputation for, for being fierce. And I think maybe that is misinterpreted at times, but you've, you've held incredible positions of authority. But I've really enjoyed speaking to you, hearing your story. I love the fact that you are so plain speaking. You're clearly a big proponent of clinical leadership. And the biggest thing for me is your sense of mission is absolutely clear. And whatever challenges you face, whatever knocks you've had along the way, you've not lost sight of that. And that, for me, is probably the biggest take home message of this entire conversation. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to drone on about myself. (laughs) So that was episode 21 with Sir David Nicholson and As daunted as I was at the start, I really enjoyed speaking to him about how he got to where he got to, some of the really wobbly moments he's had along the way, 
in things like Midstaffs and what he learnt from them, and how he's kept a sense of mission at the heart of everything that he does. And I also really appreciated his encouragement for clinical leadership at the end there. Combined with some honesty of juggling those roles and being a really hands-on dad. As ever, I'd love to hear what you think. The WhatsApps, the emails, the tweets, the messages that come through about the podcast mean a lot. And if you could share, subscribe and rate the podcast, it would really mean a lot as well to me and the team. If you'd like to be part of NextGen, check out our website for programmes that might be opening near you. And we'll see you next time for the Next Gen Cast.